So here we are at the end of our first 24 hours, and it's maybe worthwhile to reflect on why we practice to begin our Dharma exploration this evening with that question about why we practice. And some of you may have had such a day that you're going, yeah, why do I choose to do this? And that can be understandable because it is not always easy. It is not always pleasant. It's not always immediately rewarding to practice. And yet we do. We choose. From the first time that you came here, and if this is your first time here, you've chosen to practice. You've chosen to submit yourself to a process of development, a process of knowing, a process of transformation that is pretty unique in its approach. Unique because the entire process is set up to empower you, to give you choice. So it's not about believing. It's, it's not about uh, adhering to someone. It is about your own empowerment to know what is harmonious, what's skillful, what's wholesome for you. Ultimately, to have choice. Ultimately, to have choice. But you know, we don't necessarily start here with uh, some uh, uh, great inspired vision. Maybe you came because there was stress in your life and you were looking for some relief from stress. Or maybe you had been exposed to mindfulness as a practice in your work or in your community somewhere and you wanted to know more about mindfulness. And that's why you're here. Or maybe there's some sort of um, feeling of purposelessness, a lack of orientation in your life. And you're looking around to say, well, what would give me what would give me a, a kind of way of viewing the world and understanding the world that would add a sense of purpose to my life? Or maybe it's, it's just being exhausted and needing a break, a respite. That's legitimate as much as anything else. And maybe it's looking for some special meditative experience. You've heard about these meditation experiences and of various kinds, and you're coming here to see if they relate to you. Or maybe it's the feeling of sacredness itself, to want to be in touch with something that feels sacred, that uh, you don't have another outlet for finding this. And maybe it is meaning, meaning itself, maybe liberation from various kinds of suffering in your life. All of these uh, motivations uh, are wholesome within themselves. They represent vehicles that we drive ourselves to the gate. They're the true vehicle that got us to the gate where the wheel is that we walk inside the gate. Because without some sort of motivation, we wouldn't choose to do this. We would never get ourselves to make it a priority. We would not get ourselves to uh, show up and get ourselves to stay and get ourselves to really apply ourselves to practice. So it's, it's quite wholesome that we are, that we are having this kind of relationship to practice. So as we, as we go about this process of exploring the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on mindfulness, mindfulness being one of the primary ways that the Buddha taught in terms of practice. Mindfulness is Sati, S-A-T-I, 
mindfulness. It's, it's samasati, S-A-M-M-A, samasati, right mindfulness. And by right mindfulness, or wise mindfulness is another translation of that, it is the kind of mindfulness that leads to the lessening of suffering and finally to the liberation of suffering. Mindfulness can be used for other purposes. So mindfulness can be used just to seek advantage. All things being equal, the person who's more mindful in a, in a, a, a meeting that's got a lot of acrimony, got a lot of uh, fighting about it, arguing, the person who's most mindful, all other things being equal, will tend to win because mindfulness gives you an advantage. But that is not samasati. Mindfulness can make you more productive, but that would be a byproduct, just a, something that happens to come along with samasati. Sati, mindfulness, its purpose is in a relative sense and in an absolute sense, according to wise understanding in the Eightfold Path, in a relative and an absolute sense, this release from suffering, this release from suffering. And so we are involved in exploring and understanding mindfulness. And the particular uh, practice that we're doing involves not a logical explanation of mindfulness, but for you each and every one to have a direct experience of mindfulness. A direct experience to, uh, to know for yourself. It's, uh, it's very empowering in just that way. So you see what you do that causes you to have mental and physical discomfort, that, that you see what you do that causes others to suffer, and you know, with mindfulness, you don't do anything about it. You just stay with the truth of it. And after a while, you can't stand it anymore. <laughs> and you just stop doing it because you can't stand it anymore. There's all sorts of skill sets involved in that that look more like doing. But ultimately, it's not a practice of doing. It's a practice of contemplation. Contemplation means contemplating in regard to something. And the, the Buddhist contemplation is in regard to what is suffering and what is not suffering. And does this lead to suffering or does this lead not to suffering? That's the kind of contemplating that's involved here. And again, it's not so much uh, an argument with yourself, a logical kind of deduction or induction. It is the direct experience of, oh no, this, this really just makes me miserable. Oh, here it's making me miserable again. This is the 480th time today this has made me miserable. Enough already. And the, 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 it becomes a direct sense of the heat of the suffering. So if this glass were hot and I, but, and I was numb, then I would just keep holding it and be burning myself. But if I'm not numb and I feel the heat of the glass, I put it down. I don't have to throw away the glass. I don't have to destroy the glass. It's not a destroying in that way. It's a putting down, a putting down because the mindfulness led to a kind of wisdom. This is hot. This is burning my fingers. I don't wish to burn my fingers. That's suffering. 
So I put it down. It's, it's, it's an automatic, it's spontaneous realization that we're involved in in that way. This is a quote that I put at the front of the book Dancing with Life because I have found it to be so true. And it's from Ajahn Chah, who is uh, in the lineage that I most identify with, the Thai forest tradition. Ajahn Chah was a great meditation master of the last century, and he was the teacher of my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Fair enough. The kind that leads to more suffering, the kind that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. That's what we need to remember to keep the momentum of our practice going that there are two kinds of suffering, the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The, what we're doing here when it's difficult is the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And I, I found that very early on in my practice to be uh, very reassuring. I had a, a very uh, difficult body for sitting meditation, lots of injuries from early childhood of various sorts. And so it was very uh, physically painful for me to sit. My mind actually didn't get so restless and all, but my body really hurt. And um, it was uh, choosing mindfulness practice was also a, a big choice for me because I had been trained as a Raja Yogi, uh, which is one of the forms of the, the Indian forest tradition of yoga. And Raja Yoga is the uh, royal road, and it involves a lot of uh, meditation practice, but a lot of tantric practice, a lot of bliss states and all. And I had been trained so that I, was, I had a fair amount of access to bliss states. And so to come to this practice where we sit, and for a lot of the times, uh, there's not any kind of bliss state. There's just this restless mind or this aching body or th this sloth and torpor or this second-guessing ourselves, going into fantasy, all the kinds of things that uh, maybe you've experienced today. So it's, it's a real challenge to choose this, and yet each of you have chosen this. And I can assure you it's a wise choice. All of us, uh, all of us who are playing, serving in the role of, of teachers on this retreat can assure you from our own experience what a wise choice it is. And maybe that's our most important role, is we keep uh, saying to you, yeah, this is, this is worth your doing, because it's very hard to do on your own. Thus the importance of sangha, of community, uh, as was mentioned. The very importance of sangha, of community. We practice together. We are alone practicing together. Each of us has our own alone experience, but we're alone together. And alone together is very different than being alone by yourself. You can think of other situations in your life where that's true. It really makes a difference. To have a, a like-minded companion, as the Buddha liked to say. 
So that that he would he would uh, he said to Ananda at one time that spiritual friendship is 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 all of the spiritual path that this 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 sense of having others that are that are exploring in the same way with you, but yet you have this full independence as to how you explore. So we are using as our theme, our structure for this retreat, this understanding, this exploration of sati, of mindfulness. Mindfulness as taught in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is one of the suttas that's throughout the, the Pali text, the, the Thai forest, uh, all the, the uh, Southeast Asian Sri Lanka uh, text, uh, that of, of uh, the, the, uh, this kind of Buddhism, the Theravadan Buddhism, and mindfulness is, is key to it in that way. One thing about mindfulness is it's not the same as concentration practice. We have to develop some degree of concentration of having a mind collected and unified in order to be able to practice mindfulness. Otherwise, uh, we don't have enough presence to choose to stay present. We're swept away every time by fantasy or, or wanting or aversion. We, we just, we don't have enough presence. So we collect and unify the mind. On this retreat, these first couple of days, that's really what we're asking you to do, is to collect and unify the mind, concentrate the mind. Get, when we talk about being settled in, in part it's getting used to sitting and getting used to the schedule. But at its most important point, it's that your mind gets stable enough so that you can then start to explore. And it'll come and go. Sometimes it'll be there and sometimes it won't. Sometimes you'll be able to be with the breath for quite a while and then not. But as we move away from just staying with the breath and start to contemplate the whole wide range of objects, which I will describe to you in just a few minutes, you will uh, discover that even though you may not have thought you got very collected and unified in your mind, in fact, that you can stay with various experiences that arise and really look at them with a certain amount of objectivity. You will discover that there is enough uh, buffer between you and your experience that you don't always get swept away by it, by its pleasantness or its unpleasantness, the aversion, the wanting, whatever it may be. You'll discover this is true for you. The more we practice in general, the more that becomes true. But it's not, it's not a progression. It's not, a, it's not a steady sort of thing. You can have had four retreats where your mind was really getting more and more uh, collected and unified and your mindfulness got sharper and sharper. And the first five days of this retreat, you feel as though you were, uh, you're less able to be mindful than in your first retreat. It happens that way. And uh, it happens that way for a reason that we'll talk about in a moment. So this mindfulness practice that we're doing, as the Buddha tells us, here he's talking to, uh, to uh, his students. Monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, direct path. So not having to, uh, not having to 
go into the conceptual level, but a direct knowing. That's really important because that's one of the things that's so unique about uh, uh, this form of Buddhism. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the, dip- the disappearance of dukkha. Dukkha meaning it has many different uh, English connotations, this word dukkha. Dukkha means stress, it means unsatisfactory, unreliable, it means physical and mental pain, it, it means um, uh, a kind of disgruntlement, not ultimately satisfying, a kind of, those of you who are old enough to know this phrase, a kind of catch-22 to things in this realm. So, monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and limitation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method for the realization of nibbana, namely the four satipatthanas. Nibbana meaning full liberation, for those of you who are new. So, the direct path. Releasing of sorrow and lamentation, uh, uh, the disappearance of dukkha and discontent for realization. This is the path for realization. Mindfulness leads to insight and insight leads to liberation. We can't practice insight. We can't say, oh, I'm going to go in and my first set after lunch and just practice having insights. Because Insights come on their own when the conditions are right. But we can create the conditions where insights are more likely to arise. Insights that are personal in nature about our own history, our own personality, our own psychological functioning, and then the insights of the Buddha, these large universal truths uh, which tie into our individual insights in various ways. What are the four satipatthanas? Here, here, nuns, in regard to the body, a nun abides contemplating the body diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desire and discontent in regards to the world. So the, the, the contemplation of mindfulness involves four uh, qualities of mind that we are cultivating. The first of those is diligence. And diligence has a kind of a renunciation quality to it. It comes from a word that's associated with renunciation. But it's not a renunciation of a kind of like, uh, you know, mortification of the body or starving oneself to death, that sort of thing. But rather a renunciation of the mind, uh, the things that are in the mind that are not wholesome, that are not helpful. That's the level of, of, of renunciation. At one time, and uh, one of the suttas, the, uh, these people are accusing the Buddha of being a person who does, who practices these extreme tapas, these extreme kind of thing. Of, and he says, the one kind of uh, tapas that I practice is the mortification of that which is unwholesome. And that's, that's a beautiful way to think of this. That we're sitting here, we may be, we may be uh, not letting ourselves get up and walk out and distract ourselves. We may be bringing ourselves back to the breath or just as the retreat goes on, being mindful. But uh, the one th- we're not punishing ourselves in any way. We're not trying to beat our bodies or our minds or our hearts into submission of any way. We're not trying to 
force realization, but rather we're saying we won't give in to things that would just lead to more suffering if we give in to them. Just like Ajahn Chah said, that of which the kind of suffering that would lead to more suffering. No, we are renouncing in a way that that we uh, can stay, so that we have this this chance for purification. This is the direct, direct path for the purification of beings, so that our purification can continue. So these difficulties that we experience are part of the purification of practice. We are being purified. We're being released. Uh, through doing this. So diligence is one of the qualities that we, that we work with. Diligence is like, uh, and that's more practical way, is balancing the energy. So we, we are, we're practicing in a way that we're showing up, but also that's rhythmic, that we can sustain ourselves through a day, through a retreat, through a sit. If we try too hard, we exhaust ourselves, and what we really train is our frustrations. And if we train, we're, we are already subject to being frustrated easily enough, but if we really do it over and over again, frustrate ourselves, it will kill our uh, appreciation for the practice. So we don't want to be trying too hard, but on the other hand, if we don't apply ourselves to some degree, we could sit here you know, for the rest of our lives and not get anywhere. We could just daydream every single moment that, you know, that we were sitting here. And that's not wholesome either. So it's this middle way, as the Buddha described it. The middle way. We're cultivating the middle way. This is a cultivating mindfulness through the middle way. Not over-striving, not being lackadaisical, but finding the middle way. And the middle way varies in any given sit, in any given day, depending on our energy, uh, depending on how our stomach's feeling, all sorts of things. There's the middle way. What there? So the the practice involves uh, a huge amount of kindness towards ourselves, and this is one of the values of the metta. There's many other values to the metta practice, and I really hope all of you come to the metta practice each day. But one of the values of the metta is it creates this feeling of kindness that we remember kindness. We, we even maybe, in some, uh, for some of us, we get introduced to the idea that kindness towards ourselves is okay and kindness towards others. And the kindness towards ourselves and others brings a kind of calm, a kind of equanimity, both calm and equanimity to our practice. And that calm and that equanimity helps with mindfulness because when we're staying present, a lot of the things that are going to be known are things that are difficult to know. So if we can stay with the body with kindness, the mind with kindness, the heart with kindness, oh, this too, this too, oh yes, here's this memory from my childhood. Oh, it used to scare me so much, this memory. But here I am able to stay with it. Oh, here's this feeling I have right now of not, uh, I'm not doing well, everybody else is doing better, or I don't fit in here, or I don't belong, or there's not enough people like me, or whatever that the mind can think of. Because the mind will think of things that it can observe that, uh, that, and then get upset about. So we are able to say, oh, the mind's being upset over this particular feeling. Because there's a kindness, there's a, there's a benign relationship we have to what's going on in the body, mind, and heart. Very important part of this. So 
the, uh, he says diligent. The Buddha says diligent, clearly knowing. Clearly knowing is having the is having. Um, it's like it's the Pali for it is sampajana, and it's it's with clarity. There's a kind of okay. So that right now my my knee is hurting. So I'm clear that my knee is hurting. What might be the opposite of that? Oh, I'm in a bad mood, but I'm not really staying present. I don't have a clarity of mind that I don't notice that my knee hurting is causing this little edginess to my nervous system. And that edginess in my nervous system is causing this whole storm in my mind. But if I'm clearly, if I'm, uh, clearly comprehending what's true in the moment, my knee hurts and my mind does not like that my knee is hurting. Over time, it's amazing how what's difficult changes in our experience. I mean, really amazingly difficult. Knee hurting is like this. It's just knee hurting. Oh, the mind's agitated. It's just mind agitation. We cease to believe the stories that our mind tells us. We cease to be in the story and rather seeing the story, the stream of experience, as something to be contemplated as a phenomena. So knee hurting is a phenomena, that it agitates the mind as a phenomena, rather than my knee is hurting and this happens to me and if I'd taken better care of myself and I, all of that, that's the getting lost in the story. So uh, in, in learning to do this practice, we learn not to get lost in the story. And with this ability to contemplate, and contemplate in this way of, uh, in regards to suffering and non-suffering, we gain in wisdom, and we gain in purification, and we actually gain in our ability to be kind, to have compassion, to have equanimity, to have happiness for others. It's so wholesome, this practice. So wholesome. The Buddha said the Dhamma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. I've never been quite sure what the middle is, but certainly uh, insofar as my own experience goes, it is truly good. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm in the beginning of the beginning or in the middle or where it might be, but I can, I can attest on a personal level how true this is. It is, uh, it is unparalleled in that sense because it, of its empowerment in these wholesome ways. Diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful. So now you're asked to be mindful in order to practice mindfulness. In one sense, that makes sense. You have to be mindful in order to practice mindfulness. But on the other hand, you're learning how to be mindful. So it, there's a little bit of paradox here. And that is that we, for each of these qualities of mind, we are practicing them in order to learn to practice them better. So you may not be very mindful at all in any given sit. But you have this clear intention moment by moment to be mindful. So you're practicing that intention to be mindful. Likewise, in best you're able, you're directing your attention to what's, uh, what's been the chosen object like the breath or to what's the predominant object uh, as, as uh, we will do towards the end of the retreat. You're directing attention. You're directing attention. And you're directing attention while cultivating an attitude of how you're going to relate to what's going on in your mind. That 
is mindfulness. You may not be very mindful, but you are learning to direct attention, you're learning to stay connected to attention, and uh, uh, directing attention is like the spotlight of attention. And so the, the, much of the learning is beneath the surface. You don't see the learning occurring. You don't see immediately the, the, your own progress, your own development, your own capacities increasing. We, uh, in these practice discussion uh, situations, we get to see that change in, in you and we reflect it as best we're able. It goes on at many, many levels. There's much that's mysterious about this practice. Not magical, that's a different frame, but mysterious, unknown, in some instances not knowable, but only to be felt. Very mysterious in that way. And we learn to trust because we have to trust to keep going in this practice. And then the fourth of these qualities is uh, 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 free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. So we practice free from desire and discontent as best we're able. As best we're able. As best we're able. It's very difficult not to uh, have the mind be restless or wanting or resentful or something. But over time, the mind becomes free from discontent. It gets collected and unified, we could call it concentration, such that that, that, that discontent of mind, that restlessness of mind, that desiring mind uh, settles down. It doesn't mean that desire disappears, but we've got some space around it. We have some choice. It doesn't get to tell us what to do how to be in the same way. And each of those little moments that that happens, that's a bit of freedom right there. Right there. The actual um, structure of these four Satipatthanas one of them is around the body, and there, there, there are six different ways of contemplating the body, what, starting with breath, and then the, the body sensations, and so forth. Larry mentioned the elements this morning. You'll have a whole, uh, you'll receive an entire Dharma talk on, on the body, so I'm not going to name them here for you now. But the, the, there are these different ways of contemplating the body. The reason is that the, as we uh, circumambulate the knowing of body, we start to gain uh, perspective. We start to have small insights about, oh, the way, uh, the way I've been identifying with my body is not so accurate. That's not really, as I look closely, that's not the way it is. And we start to see that uh, that what we take as a solid is made up of parts in various ways. And this is so helpful. So helpful, not just in sitting practice, but in, uh, in every part of your life. Because that, that, we tend to, one of the places we get so caught is in identifying with the body. And the body oftentimes is a source of discomfort and also a source of fear and uh, shame and all sorts of things. So we really... Uh, have a purification happen around the body. Why did the Buddha start with the body? 
Maybe because the body is the easiest to detect, to stay with. Maybe that's one reason. Maybe another reason is because if we get started in the body, we can then do these other contemplations. And there's a series of other possible reasons. The second of the contemplations, the second of the satipatthanas, so each of the satipatthanas is a contemplation, is, is what called vedna or feelings. That is, the, the existence of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feeling tone in relation to every mind moment. Again, you're going to have a, a, a talk that describes this in, in some detail, so I'm not going to go into any detail. I'm naming all of these tonight because of the value of repetition and learning. As you hear this tonight, then when you hear a, a talk on this, it's already familiar to you, so your mind doesn't have to go through some disorientation while you miss part of the information. So this, this arising of, of the feeling tone to experience. Sitting here right now, in your mind, there is a little flavoring of pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Right now, can you feel it? And right now, all over again. So maybe when I first said that, you were looking at me and you kind of went to, how does my mind feel? And it was in relation to the, the thinking process, the contemplation process. But as I took more time, maybe you suddenly dropped into your body and the feeling when you were focused on the body, the pleasant unpleasant is very different. And if, if you think of a pleasant memory right now, you'll see it can change again. and on and on. So it's a stream. It's a stream that accompanies the mind moment streams. And it is so important because it is so uh, instrumental in conditioning how we experience the moment and whether we act skillfully or unskillfully in relation to creating suffering for ourselves. And as we learn through this particular Satipatthana is that it's just pleasant and it's just unpleasant. So there comes, with all of these, a kind of uh, a spaciousness around our experience with the body, with pleasant and unpleasant. The third of these is the mind itself, where we learn to contemplate the mind. We're just learning to contemplate the mind. And as we do so, we're, uh, there's these uh, different aspects, there's a whole d uh, different number of ways to look at contemplation of the mind, and you'll hear about those also later in the retreat. But basically, we're seeing whether a mind state is a wholesome mind state or an unwholesome mind state. And we're not trying to fix it. Again, we're trusting that seeing clearly, repeatedly, leads to a spontaneous movement towards the wholesome. That itself requires a bit of faith because we're so oriented towards uh, uh, judging and fixing ourselves, comparing and fixing, and so forth. So it, it's it's a bit of an effort to do that. And then the the these first three, the body and the feeling and the 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 mind states, the state of the mind, are when we're doing mindfulness with them, and and in in a progression way within the sutta, we're just learning to recognize them and to stay with them. The fourth satipatthana is a little different because it has information that we then apply to all of our experience of body and feeling and, and mind. 
and th th there's a, a number of the big D Dharma, uh, the, the 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 Buddha's principal teachings of how things are. This is the way it is, and this is the way to go to find freedom. And so you go through a series of things from the the sense spheres of the body, all the different senses, to the 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 seeing the the hindrances that the various states of mind that this is presented and uh, through the what makes up a moment and what makes up a moment of liberation what are the factors that lead to liberation to finally ending in the four noble truths so the uh, the entire four satipatthanas in each in each of these satipatthanas you get more and more subtle in what you're able to see and they're all so each one there's there's different aspects to and and they get more and more subtle. And then in the end, you end up being able to understand the Four Noble Truths. So the purpose in that regard of mindfulness is to be able to fully realize the Four Noble Truths. And it's the Four Noble Truths, the practice of the Four Noble Truths, that bring liberation. So the Four Noble Truths and and the, 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 the Satipatthana Sutta, those they're really bound together in that way and they overlap in that way. It's, and when you, uh, year after year, uh, in my own experience, uh, there's always deeper connections in this way. The level you're experiencing the Dharma is meaningful, whatever level it is. You could be just the first retreat ever. This could be your 20th retreat. And there are some people here that are at that level of, of retreat attendance. And it stays rich. It's, there's always this deepening connection in this way. One thing that gets confusing uh, even for people with quite a bit of experience, is you, uh, it's easy to fall into thinking that the, the purpose of this is to focus on the objects. So I'm, the, I'm on the breath. The breath is my object. So the purpose is the breath. Oh, now I'm on the body. So now the purpose is I'm, I'm, is I'm focusing on the body. Uh, now I'm on feeling tone, this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Now I'm focusing on that, as though the object were what's important. But that's a misunderstanding. What's important is how we're relating to the experience. It's how we're relating to it. If it's something in the body, it's how we're relating to that body. If it's, if it's something in the feeling tone, it's how we're relating to it. It's, if it's a mind experience, a mind that's angry, or a mind that's in deep concentration, it's how we're relating to each of those experiences. We, use, we utilize objects to see these larger principles. The objects themselves aren't, aren't the goal, they're the means towards the goal. So uh, beware of getting fixated on that. So there, because this is part of keeping this balance in practice. Oh, so here I am being with, with the body and I'm coming and going with the body. That coming and going may be really good practice for you right now. And you, you don't have to like hold on. There's not, there's not this grasping because this is a practice of letting go, not of holding on. It's much more uh, a practice of surrender 
rather than acquiring. The purification is the letting go. There, wisdom is acquired, but it comes on its own. We don't really do the wisdom. The w- wisdom just arises, as does the, the, this increase in loving kindness and so forth. So there's, um, we're learning how to see. We're learning how what is, to see what is, and then how to relate to it. That's, that's the practice. And it's for a very, um, uh, there's an immediate see to this gain and then this final liberation. So this, the, the relevant, the, the, the re- relative and the absolute. And there's a poem that I've been uh, reading lately in uh, uh, teachings that I give having to do with uh, just how very immediate and practical it is to be able to, to choose non-suffering over suffering. Very practical, very like, well, of course I would do that. I mean, not get caught up in all the possible theorizing about, well, I'm, do, I'm practicing mindfulness, I'm practicing Vipassana, but no. Like, how does it feel in daily life right here and right now? And it's a, a poem called Phone Call, and it's by a poet named Tony Hoagland. And it's from his book, What Narcissism Means to Me. Maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. That might have been a little strongly put, a slight over-exaggeration, an immoderate description of the person who at that moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must have regretted paying for my therapy. What I meant was that my father was an enemy of my humanity. And what I meant behind that was that my father was split into two people. One of them living deep inside of me like a bad king or an incurable disease, blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my wells. The other standing in another time zone in a kitchen in Wyoming with bad knees and white hair sprouting from his ears. I don't want to scream forever. I don't want to live without proportion like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second father, the one whose TV dinner is getting cold while he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly out the window. Where just now the sun is going down and the last fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. We don't want to scream forever inside. We don't want to confuse our, our, our loved ones as, as enemies. We don't want to organize around those we perceive as enemies. We wish to have a choice. We wish to have a way of relating that has a sense of well-being, of inclusion, of non-hatred, of non-harming. That is the immediacy, the practicality of what we're doing here. Yes, it's, it's magnificent and large and hard to contemplate on the one hand. On the other hand, I just don't want to get mad at the person who took the last banana and, and took the whole thing in the morning, lunch line, morning breakfast line. 
I don't want to contract when the, that last banana is gone, when it could have been cut in half and I would have gotten half of it. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't mind if I was standing there and someone cuts in front of me. I don't want to, I don't want to have my mind contract because someone took, took a turn ahead of me. Why would I contract? Why would I choose that if I could choose going, oh, oh, that's unpleasant. That's unpleasant. Why would we want to imprison ourselves in, this, in these contractions? To be possessed by wanting and wanting and wanting. It's not fun. It's not, it doesn't feel good. It's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't lead anywhere. So this, this, this practice of these four satipatthanas is a way that we learn to have that kind of choice. We see that our experience is, is knowable, that we can actually be present for our experience. Mindfulness requires being present in the moment. You can't know your experience if you're not present. So as you, in order to know your experience, you practice being present in this moment, in this moment, in this moment, in this moment. And then after a while, that, that being present develops a kind of presence. It turns out that in many of the moments of your life, you're present. You don't have to be doing presence anymore. You're, you're not, you're, the mindfulness starts to become more automatic. And so there's this, whoa, I'm here. I'm actually showing up in my own life. This is different. And then, not just am I showing up, I know how to know it. I know how to know what I'm experiencing. Knowing it in a way of wisdom. Knowing it in a way of kindness. In a way that is empowering. I know how to know my experience. I'm present so I can know it, but I know how to know it wisely. I'm not knowing it in the way that leads to more suffering. And it comes with just the practice. We don't have to hold all of this as some idea. Just doing this over and over again. And then we start to see for ourselves this purification over time. On this retreat, in some way or another, I suspect every one of you will have some a fairly significant kind of a purification occur, which you may or may not recognize. And hopefully if we're on our toes, we can help you uh, catch it and realize it. And among those things of purification is seeing that old habits do not have to define us. That we can release ourselves from old habits and from old conditionings of mind. That it's really true that the Buddha was telling the truth. And it's startling. Because, you know, there's, we live in a world of advertising of all these false promises. And it turns out that the Buddha is actually telling the truth. And if anything, understating it in terms of uh, the, the practice along the way. I don't know about this full liberation, but along the way. And, that we, and we start to see that in relation to ourselves and our decision-making and others, that there is wisdom. We have some degree of wisdom, that more in some areas than others, and uh, it grows faster in some others than areas, other areas. But there is some wisdom we are actually starting to have wisdom with all of our faults. Not the new improved version of ourselves, but what's evolving through the Satipatthana contemplations. In the sutta, 
the um, the instructions, and I again I'm doing I'm I'm being part uh, pedantic to because there's just an orientation that I think is necessary. I, we really believe in this transparency, so just to be transparent about this, when I name these various things, it's 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 like like I did with the, those qualities of diligence and uh, uh, clearly knowing and so forth. Those are like mental bookmarks that we need to orient, like to have a map to go through. It helps to hear that a little bit. It gives us a kind of intellectual grounding, and, and that, uh, that helps modern minds, this intellectual grounding. Then the more inspirational part helps the heart, and it's ultimately the heart that's liberated. So going back to a bit of the pedantic for a moment, a bit of the conceptual, this, and after each of these uh, uh, presentations of the, of the uh, Satipatthanas and each part within them, uh, the Buddha does this re- repeating refrain. Which is, uh, so the thing that, uh, I'm going to read it to you, but this is what's there the most, is this refrain. Because it, it comes after each one of the different Satipatthanas. So therefore it must be important since he's saying it so much. In this way, and I don't want to do that in relation to that, and I'll do it in relation to the body. In this way, in regard to the body, he abides or she abides contemplating the body internally, externally, internally, externally. So if I'm doing this, my body, your body, your body, I'm contemplating the body within the way body is for me, the way I witness body for another. In this way, in regard to the body, she abides contemplating the body internally, externally, both internally and externally. He abides contemplating the nature of arising and of passing away. This is a Nietzsche that things are always changing. So when we're there, we're watching the body, we're seeing our own body, we're seeing other bodies, we're mindful of other bodies, we're mindful that the body, every experience of the body arises in the mind and passes away, that it's never permanent. He abides contemplating the nature of arising of the body, of passing away of the body, of both arising and passing away in the body. So again, the, the, the mindfulness is a very specific mindfulness. It's a specific kind of contemplation. It involves it involves this uh, establishment of knowing, in this instance it's the body, and then knowing what? Knowing about the, everything about the body arises and passes away. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in her to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. So it's, it's not, we, there's all sorts of other things we could discover about the body, but we don't do that we are staying with the body for the purposes of seeing how the body, uh, uh, our relationship to the body leads to more suffering or leads to the end of suffering. So we, we're, we're finding a way of being in our lives that creates well-being. That's the purpose of our contemplation. We're not being mindful of the body in order to make a more powerful body to be a greater athlete or a better dancer. But as we become mindful of the body in this way, it in fact empowers the body. It empowers the body in terms of performance, empowers the body in terms of health, and on and on and on. But those are byproducts. That's not what we're doing. And I stress this because 
and and as mindfulness has has moved more and more into uh, the larger cultural awareness, the advantages of gain, worldly gain, have become more predominant. And we're here on retreat, where we're really learning to free the mind-heart. We're learning to free the mind-heart. And then all of these other uh, 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 benefits that come, they're like gravy, they're like just the, that's because the sunshine and the rain is in balance, things grow, and that's terrific. But it's, it's that we're really, it's about this. And each person here is worthy of that. Each person here is worthy of that. In, in the, with the Buddha's statue here, uh, the, in the uh, story of his Night of Enlightenment, this, this, um, these various kinds of temptations came to him, these various kinds of challenges came to his mind-heart and uh, through what's called Mara in the teaching. But um, it, this, it is asked, who do you think you are to sit here and say that you are worthy of freeing your mind-heart? You could be using all of your capabilities, your great talent, to go out and do other things to help other people. You could, you could do a lot of things, and you're sitting here doing this, saying this is important, this is important. So in modern terms, you could, you could be an athlete, you could be an a, you know, a, a entertainer, you could be a scientist, you could say all of these different, this, this, the, the, the temptation to say this isn't worthwhile, to, to make the, the worldly the only measurement. And the Buddha's only answer was he reached down and touched earth with the, his fingertips. And he gave witness, through, he, the earth, Mother Earth, gave witness to the worthiness of this undertaking. And you yourself can reach down and touch earth during these, these days that we're sharing together in that way. You are worthy because you are here and awake. You're here and you're conscious. You have this natural propensity towards this liberation. How far each of us goes and each, any time and all this, another whole matter. But to feel ourselves worthy of this, to feel it as a worthwhile endeavor, absolutely. The Buddha talks about noble ones in a way that was very different than the way noble was used in uh, the, 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 culture, the Indian culture at his time. And he was saying the noble ones were the ones who were willing to walk the Eightfold Path, the ones who were contemplating the Four Noble Truths. And through mindfulness, that's what we're doing. And this, this sense of that we're worthy of this and that we're capable of this is so valuable during those rocky times in practice. I want to um, uh, end with, uh, with a little moments of silence, but this purification, you're able to be here you're able to bear what's arising. That makes you worthy. You can stay present when your mind is complaining and you're not getting lost in the complaining. You're staying present. Listen to this complaining mind, this self-pitying mind, this angry mind, hateful mind. So you're able to stay present. You're able to bear it. That's so noble. That is the first noble truth, this ability to bear. And then to, to, uh, uh, to bear in a way that you stay present that gives you a sense of being able to fully receive in it. So you really get to, to receive the whole experience. So there's nothing has to be excluded as you sit there. Wow. Wow. 
That's certainly not true in your social interactions or in your work life. But here you can receive anything that arises and able to see it clearly and see it from this contemplation of, of, this, of what's the suffering and what's non-suffering. What's the, what's the way that I re- identify with it that leads to more suffering and what's the way I relate to it that leads to non-suffering. Wow, wow. And then ultimately to let it go, to let everything go. So noble, so worthy, this endeavor. If you'll close your eyes for a moment. This is a small excerpt from a T.S. Eliot poem that during a very difficult time in my life that lasted for a couple years, these were the lines that gave me the presence to continue. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. We sit in stillness without expectation and all eventually opens on its own accord. Thank you for your kind attention. I really want to urge each person to do. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.